Welcome to Advance Your Art. If you are interested in making money from your art, using your artistic background to your advantage when switching careers, or if you are just plain stuck, you've come to the right place. Now let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yorika Talbo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or if you're just feeling stuck, you've come to the right place. Every week, I sit down with a creative entrepreneur to discuss the who, what, and why of their journey. If you like this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and share us with a friend. Today, I'm sitting down with Tim Tortora, who's an ex-movie producer and outsource CFO for producers in Hollywood. Tim, hello. Welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, very well. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. It's my, my pleasure. This is, uh, this is a lot of, lot of fun. So before we dig into your, your story, um, how do you describe yourself and what you do? I am an outsourced CFO. So what that means is I run the backend processing for producers who make uh, branded content, independent features, and TV movies, and to some extent, some television in Hollywood for the networks and the studios. And I do that for about a dozen producers. And my job is to make sure that the back-end finance works, which includes finding money for and connecting banks and financiers with distribution paper and tax credits for, that we earn around the world. Very interesting. Okay. Um, all right. But, but before we get into those kind of details i want to start i want to back up a little bit to just to kind of lead us to what got you here so what initially made you interested in the movie industry well i grew up in southern california i lived in orange county california which is in a in a town called fullerton which is on the border of la and orange county mm -hmm. and i was a music kid i played drums as a percussionist in in the fourth grade and I wanted to go to college to be a player, to be a musician. And as I was doing that, I got interested, not interested, I was required to take, we all were, were required to take a recording engineering class. And in doing that, I did it my freshman year. And in doing that, I learned about the technical side and the business side of music and really got into it. And subsequent to that, I started to see other players who were a lot better than me, practiced a lot more than me. And I didn't want to practice that much. And I just decided I was more interested in the business and technical side of it. And that's what I pursued. Okay. And that's kind of where my career started when I was in college and I worked my way through college and that was in 1985. Cool. Very nice. Okay. So actually let's pick up from there. So, okay. So you were in college, you were starting to work your way through there. Yeah. What was, so talk to me then about your then journey through the different ranks in in Hollywood. So I I was I started as a tape op. I was an unpaid intern, which I say to my students being an unpaid internship, being an unpaid intern and doing internships mm -hmm. is a great place to learn, build networks, demonstrate that you can be a reliable referral for other jobs. That is the business. The, this is a business of referrals. If you want to work in film production, you have to demonstrate passion, interest, understanding, and what I like to call movie stupid. So mm -hmm. it, it makes no sense working in film production. Getting into the industry is defies logic. You're not paid well, you don't get a great title, and you're going to work for, no, for long hours and very little money and no glory, mm -hmm. um, with the exception of you know, being able to tell your friends you're working in Hollywood. 
And there's a lot of places where you can deploy your time and your talent and go nowhere because there's plenty of, I call them the internet, I call them the Hollywood con man, which are producers who are making content that will never be seen by anybody. And, and there's no thing, there's nothing wrong with dipping into that world. Mm-hmm. It's amateur. It's a great place to build a network, although the network you build there isn't going to last very long and it's not going to be durable and it's not really professional work and you have to get retrained. But you've at least demonstrated as someone who is a professional that you have the skills to do that thing. So mm-hmm. I started out as an intern and I worked with some amazing people who were, you know, I worked with Bob Brown, a, a recording engineer who was Alice Cooper's road manager. And I worked on Poison's first record. I worked with a couple of other people, Dan Van Patten, who was a founding member of Berlin. So what I learned at a really young age was how to compete and how to operate at the highest level. And there's a difference between the people who succeed in the industry and the people who just kind of flounder. And the level of quality and the way they apply their job and their skills is, it, it, it is the, the needle is pegged to 100 all the time. They never settle. They're very meticulous. And they work hard and they work really long and stupid hours. That's what I, that's why I call it movie stupid. Um, and I learned that skill. I also learned that the people you get to know early on in your career and the projects you work on have more to do with your success later on down the road than you probably have any clue about when you begin. So I say to people all the time, be more interested in the people you work with, the projects you work on, and don't worry about the title or the money you're going to make. The money will come, the title will come, but you have to put your dues in and you have to demonstrate that you're that person who's interested to learn and you need sponsor somebody above you. And that sponsorship is a little bit different than mentorship. And we can talk what that, in my opinion, what that means if you want, but they're very different things and you have to be cognizant of who your sponsors are. And that's an important part of the business. Yeah. Okay. So, so two things. Uh, I do want to get into what you talk about between sponsorship and mentorship, but also you you mentioned not getting sucked into uh, bad projects with people whose pro- whose you know projects are going nowhere. Yeah, how do you spot the difference between like the charlatans from the the real ones? The simple fact, the simple truth is, it's just money. Are they paying well? Do they have money for stuff, equipment, locations? Mm-hmm. Are they cutting every corner? Are they, every production has, there's a friction between the amount of money you're given and the creative appetite. Those two are constantly in conflict. So you can't say a producer is being cheap here because, and therefore they're not, they're not connected. That's not the point of the conversation. Are you being paid? And, you know, PAs, entry level, production assistants, which is what a PA is. Mm-hmm. That's where you're going to start. You're going to start out as someone's assistant uh, or on a desk or in production, driving stuff around the city or, you know, it's commonly referred to as a gopher. You do whatever they ask you to do, as long as it's not illegal or immoral. Um, You know, those jobs, they start at 700 bucks a week up to as much as $1,500 a week. And there's often overtime, not often, it's required to be paid overtime in in LA and New York and other big big, uh, states, Mm -hmm. but you're being paid and there's resources and there's a lot of people around. Movies are, uh, movies are, essentially small projects, but at scale. When I say movies, I mean movies and television. They're both produced by the same people in the same way. They just get exhibited in different places. They spend different amounts of money and you know they're just slightly different formats, but it's pretty much the same thing. It's storytelling, right? Right. So the biggest tell is, do these people have money? And the only way you're going to know that is A, in your paycheck, 
or B, how does the person you're working for, what do they look? Are they dressed well? Are they driving a shitty car? Do they have money to spend on uh, resources and equipment and that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. That's the biggest tell. And do they have distribution? Is this project going to wind up being on Netflix, ABC, NBC, CBS, a cable network in a movie theater? Or is it going to run the festival circuit? And it's going to be great, bro. We're going to get rich and famous and we're going to be awesome. The latter is not going to go anywhere. And if it does, it is an absolute anomaly. And mm -hmm. just like the startup world, you can apply yourself to, you might find the anomaly. Absolutely. I'm not saying you won't. I'm not saying you can't. But the likelihood of that happening is pretty low. And it's probably better to get on the project. You know, I, I hear this about startup advice all the time. Get on startups, get into projects that are kind of already two thirds of the way into being successful and finding their way into someplace. Like there's a lot of people working on it. It has distribution. It's on its way to raising capital and, and, and wide adoption. Similar mm -hmm. rules apply here. That's the best way to sort of ferret those things out. Mm. Okay. So along with that, then talk to me the difference between sponsorship and mentorship and how you, how you look at both of those. Right. So mentorship is, well, the, the simplest definition is the sponsor is somebody inside the organization who can pull you up to the next job. And this mm -hmm. is a business of referral. If you don't have the sponsor inside an organization, whether that's in film production, at a studio, at a production company, on a particular show, you're not going to get moved up. You're going to stagnate and you're going to, you're not going to go anywhere. So you have to find a, a sponsor and that sponsor you want to cling to like a barnacle. The, the mentor is someone outside an organization who doesn't necessarily have your best interests at heart. In other words, a sponsor has to make sure the person they're recommending is successful. A mentor doesn't necessarily, they're not, they don't have any chips in the game. They're just giving you advice. So the, the, the advice I often hear from you know, gurus and, and self-help and all these places about how to build your career is go find someone to be a mentor. I just... I think that conversation is just bullshit and it's weird. It's like, hey, buddy, will you be my mentor? That's kind of, it just feels gross, right? Mm -hmm. And you're going to find people who will be your mentor that you never, I, you, that, that they have no idea that you are. You might see how they talk, how they write, how they work, how they operate. That person might be a mentor to you, but they have no idea that that's happening and that relationship is set up. Or it may be not just implied, it may actually be, a direct connection where you're asking advice and you should try to find people like that. And the way you find mentors is you just, you ask them, you ask them questions about the industry, about what you should do. Maybe there's a lateral move you want to make. There's a project you want to work on. There's somebody you want to work with. Call up someone who's been around a while and say, Hey, I have this opportunity. Should I take it? And they'll probably ask you a couple of qualifying questions. Like, where are you at in your career? Who are the people? What's going on? That kind of thing. That's a mentor. A sponsor is someone inside an organization who is essentially your direct, or it's not necessarily your direct boss, but it could be somebody in another department that you make a connection to who can be a sponsor for you on another show. I can't tell you how many times I made friends with a set decorator who was actually was a lead man, but that's neither here nor there. He gave me tips on open shows more than anybody else. I was a finance guy. I was going for finance jobs, right? He had nothing to do with finance except that he had to get money from him to for petty cash and turn in receipts and a time card so he could get paid. So his connection to finance was little to none, but he was always knowing what was going on, what was missing. He was just a busybody. And that was amazing for me. 
Hmm. Because I learned that this was someone who I could go out and make friends with. And I genuinely enjoyed him. We had great conversations. We enjoyed hanging out, working together. And I'd mm-hmm. call him up and say, hey, man, I'm looking for work. You know, anybody who's looking for whatever job I was looking for? And he'd be like, you know what? I do. Call this person. Tell him I told you to call. So that's a sponsor. And mm-hmm. you have to figure out the distinction between the two. The mm-hmm. sponsor is the person you have to impress. That's the person you have to be an intern for or your, your work as an assistant to or a production, a PA or whatever it is. Just understand the distinctions and uh, the sponsor is super important. And that's something you're going to spend a lot of time cultivating and networking into. And it doesn't have, it doesn't have to be that kind of, you know, it sells, it feels like you're selling all the time, right? Which technically you are, that is the job of being in entertainment. You're, you're essentially an entrepreneur. People just don't call it that, you know, you're the entrepreneur of your career. You get paid like everybody else on a paycheck, but you're constantly jumping from one project to the next and there's no stable income that you can just rely on. So you have to build that network out and having a group of sponsors who can sponsor you and refer you to shows within the industry and in film production is super important. Mm-hmm. I'm curious in your own career. And so um, just kind of looking at the different levels of, of jobs you had over the years, but sometimes they vary between, let's say a couple of years to longer what made you want to move on to the next role or the next, even like working with a new production company? Were there, was this a, did you have like a planned time where you were then jumping over? Were you always looking for something new? Were these just opportunities that became available or how did you think through each of these moves? Um, So I'm going to answer that question with yes, because, uh, and I know you asked, a bunch yeah. of questions, <laughs> options, right? right? The answer is ever. It's all of the above. Okay. So when I was, I was working at um, at McCann Erickson on Columbia and TriStar Pictures. I was a media planner, I think, at the time at an ad agency. You know, one of eleven people working on a big ad account. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to become a full time ad guy, and I always wanted to work in production, so I left that job. I was offered the next job up and I was like, ah, this isn't really what I want to do. When I did that, and I was 25 when that happened. Mm-hmm. When I did that, I did a whole bunch of informational interviews, probably about a dozen with people around town, agents, people who worked in production, folks in the studios, people I had met through my travels working in advertising for a couple of years. And I had set up a long-term goal, long-term meaning the next five years. By the time I'm 30, I want to be the head of physical production, I'd identified that there was that job and that's something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the head of physical production for a company that had an ind- that was independent, un- but had an overhead deal at a studio or a network that was making either features or television or both. And that's kind of how the industry is structured. And I wound up getting that job at Harpo Films. I was th- um, a little over 30. I was almost 31. Mm-hmm. I achieved that goal by the time I was 30. And in between 25 and 30, I just said yes to every opportunity that came up. Mm -hmm. Anytime a show came up, I knew I wanted to work in finance. So I took a job as a PA on a TV show called Dream On. I talked to, I did it for about a year, really nine months about how that season was. Um, Days were long. I stuck around. I did everything I was asked to do. I did it faster than any of the other PAs. And I did it more complete. That's the other thing. I always said yes to everything. And I figured out how to do the best job I could and listen to what it is they wanted from me and made sure that I was delivering on that thing so that I looked like the rock star. Mm-hmm. And I was I would do whatever I had to to get connected, right? 
So then that led to me learning about the, all the jobs, grip, electric camera, set deck, finance, UPM, writing, acting, whatever. I knew I wasn't going to be a creative. I've always known, not always, at least in my adult life, I've always known that I am not the guy with the most creative ideas in the room. I'm the guy with the most obvious idea in the room. So was I going to be a good writer? No. Was I going to be a good director? Probably not. <laughs> so I, I gravitated toward finance and worked my way up in those ranks. And from 25 to 30, I scheduled movies and TV shows. I did it for free. I did budgets for practically free, a couple hundred bucks where other people around me were making anywhere from a thousand to 10,000, depending on the size of the picture. Mm -hmm. uh, and my budgets, I started to get a reputation around town as this like, as this young guy who was doing budgets and they were pretty accurate, you know, cause I'd been around it. I'd been doing it for a couple of years. So I would freelance doing that on top of the shows. I would do it at night. So I kind of got a reputation for doing a thing. And then hmm. it came, I was out looking for a, a, a movie. I was in between projects and I got a call. I called a friend of mine who uh, had said to me, I said, I'm looking for a show. And I'm just, I don't really have anything going on. Have you heard about anything? She said, you know what? And I had worked with her on a Bob De Niro picture uh, previous, previously that year. And she said, you know what? You should call this guy, Jim West. He's UPM on the show that's going at, uh, that Oprah's in, uh, that's going at Harpo Films. Give him a call. He's looking for an accountant. I called him up. He hired me on the spot because I knew the woman who recommended me to call him. And, I, and she said, drop his name. I'm going to email him right now. Uh, I did that. I got that job. I recognized in that job on that movie, which was the first in a series of Oprah, Oprah Winfrey Presents, which was uh, Before Women Had Wings. I was mm -hmm. the lead accountant on it. I then learned that they were looking for a production executive. I then was asked by the head of the president of the company to write a profile about who she should be hiring for that job. She was having a hard time finding someone. And it really boiled down to she just wasn't offering enough money for the job for someone with experience. So I crafted a profile of me, you need to hire me. And I turned it in, she looks at it and read it and said, oh, this, don't you do all this stuff? And by the way, I'm not brilliant. I think she set me up for this, by the way. Uh, <laughs> set, she set me up for success to basically say, yeah, that's me, you need to hire me. Ah, okay. So it's not like I'm a genius who saw this magical thing in the window, right? I think it was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of her saying, maybe this kid can do it, let's just see if it works out. So anyway. So I gave her me as the option. I pulled a Dick Cheney basically, right? Mm -hmm. For vice president. So before Dick Cheney did it in the mid nineties and she gave me the job. She gave me the job as the, uh, as a production executive. And I, over the years, I worked my way up to the head of physical production. And for five or six years, I did it for her and did it for Oprah, Oprah's company. And it was the best job I've ever had in my career. And I learned so much and met so many amazing people. And it really had my career take off into the stratosphere because I was working for Oprah Winfrey and that was cachet and that changed everything in my life, in my career. Mm, so the answer to your question is yeah. yes, I did everything. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Which is what my inclination was, but it's uh, this is, it's good to hear at least how, you know, how, how you went through that and kind of thought through that at the same time. Well, I, I'll add one thing. Sure. The, the, the long-term strategy in the five-year strategy of what I wanted, I had figured out that that was the goal job. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was striving for the entire time. But how I got there, I didn't map it out. I had no idea how I was going to get there. And I don't think in entertainment you can. 
I don't think anybody who gets to a senior level job goes, oh yeah, I went to go work here and then I went there and then I went to this and I went to that. I just stayed in my vertical. I did the best job I possibly could. And I was always looking for the next job up and doing that job of the person above me to try to relieve the pressure off their desk. In addition to doing the, the job I was hired to do and do that job very well. So, and that meant I gave up a lot of things. I didn't go to movies with friends. I stayed, I worked till midnight. I woke up at six every day and went to work, right? I, I went early. I stayed late. I made a reputation for myself. Did I have work-life balance? Hell no. Did I give up doing things that were fun with my friends? Absolutely. But mm -hmm. did I build a career and build a reputation? Yes. And it paid off when I got to be 45, you know? So mm -hmm. it actually paid off much earlier than that, but all those things paid off. And I hear about work-life balance. I think it's bullshit. You, there is no such thing as work-life balance. The balance is you can either work or have a life. End of story. Mm -hmm. And if you decide to have a life, you're going to give up some things in your work. You're going to give up success and forward trajectory and re reaching high, attaining high goals. Or if you pick uh, work, you're going to have some life things give up. You won't spend as much time with your friends. You may not spend time with family. You may not have kids here in your 40s. There's lots of things that happen. Those two things are, are, have a friction that you can't avoid. The question is, how are you going to deal with that? And which one do you want to pick? You don't have to do one or the other. You, you get to decide. Or you can do both mediocre. It's up to you. Yeah. So talk to me about why your eventual move to outsource CFO and, and what that thought process was like. Well, it was really easy. When I left Harpo, which was in 2001, I left about six months before September 11th. And I was going out to freelance as a line producer. And I did a bunch of that. I worked, you know, I made a Benji movie. I worked on the first Jackass movie. I made a snowboard documentary for Burton Films and a whole bunch of other things for Mandalay Entertainment in between, which I, I did a whole bunch of line producing for them. Mm -hmm. But uh, at least in the sports action division. Um, but, you know, I was out on the road. I was traveling a ton between my, the work at Harpo and then line producing. And I got to go all over the world. I spent 16 years living in places like Prague and all over the country, all over the US, Canada, um, Japan, Northern Europe, I mean, all over the place. Um, it was amazing. But it, I, started to, I started to realize when I got to be, and, I, and by the way, I didn't, I didn't marry till I was 40 years old. I might've been 39 when I got married. Mm -hmm. I was, I was actually 39 when I'm, when I'm finally married. Um, and then I didn't have a kid till I was 45. And I was on a movie in Monterey, Mexico uh, for my first wedding anniversary. And I was away from my then new wife. And I was just thinking to myself, do I really want this life? Is this what I want to be doing with my life when I'm 60? And I was like, no, I, I was sure I didn't want to continue doing it. I had a great run. I loved it. But I was looking around going, this kind of sucks. And I want to have a family. And those two are at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. So the the decision I made in 2007, which is when I was in Monterey, um, the decision I made was I need to transition into doing something different. I don't want to be this person anymore, and I don't know what it's going to be, and I'm only good at film production. That's all I've ever done, and I just need to figure out how to transition into that. So for the next two years, I just had my antenna out. What could I do? I wanted to be a production. I want to go back to being a production executive or I wanted to work in finance, which were the two things I was really good at. And I often say to my students and my clients, when you're, when you're young, figure out what you're really good at 
and lay into that. I was really good at budgets and finance and schedules and logistics and all that stuff. And I laid into it. I did it for Oprah. I did it freelance. And then now I do it as a CFO. So mm -hmm. the answer to your question is I got married. I wanted to have a family and I did. I wound up having a kid in uh, 2011. So I had to figure out before we were going to have a baby, how am I going to be able to stay home and do this thing? That presented itself in the form of being a CFO. And that just kind of happened through the grapevine of a, a, a business manager called me up and said, hey, I have a client who is looking for a temporary person to replace their CFO that just left. Are mm -hmm. you available? And I was working with another client who made uh, interstitial work for a lot for MTV and a lot of those networks, uh, you know, whatever, 12, 13 years ago. And uh, I said, yeah, I, I'll go talk to him. And I sat down and I worked for them for about four or five months. And then they were like, you know, we're, we need this full-time job. We're not finding anybody. Do you want to do it? And I had, a, and I had said to them, I wanted to do it. So it just worked out in 2009. I started working as a CFO pretty much full-time. I abandoned the production work in 2009 and I had two or three clients and I was traveling back and forth between Boston, Mass and LA. And because my, my now ex-wife, my wife at the time was in graduate school in Boston uh, and it was time, you know, to, to figure out whether we we're going to live there or live in LA. And, you know, a lot of, it just kind of happened to answer your question. And it's, again, I just, I set the long-term goal. The long-term goal was I need to make a living in the entertainment business. I don't know how that's going to be, how I'm going to do that. And my skill set is working in finance and in mm. physical production. That turned out to be being a CFO for producers on an outsourced basis. That happened largely because the writers went on strike in 2008 or nine, the WGA. Mm -hmm. And all these producers were like, shit, I don't have the money from the studio anymore because their overhead deals got force majeure after six weeks. I don't have the money for this guy making 150 Gs. So I got to let him go, but I still need someone to do the work. And I was like, I can do that for you. And I'm not going to be full time. So we can do it for a quarter of what you're paying. Mm -hmm. So there you go. It was kind of just keeping my antenna out, knowing what my long-term goals were and putting a bunch of pieces together to turn into the business I now have created after whatever, 13 years. Yeah. Okay. Great. So let's talk about you and your, you, you have a new book that you just released called um, Hollywood Dream Jobs, how to build the connections that will shape your career in film and TV. What made you want to write this book? Um, what made me want to write the book? Well, it, it kind of came out of my blogging. I started blogging, uh, I don't know, five years ago. And it was about the business because I kept hearing from prospective clients who were calling me up and saying, hey, I just got ripped off by, I just got, you know, my movie stolen by, and I just had, you know, one circumstance after another. So I started blogging about, here's how the business works. This is the way uh, distribution deals come at you. This is how casting happens. It doesn't happen in a hotel room and it doesn't happen at some guy's house. If it does, you're likely going to see his dick. So don't go unless you want to. It's up to you. It happens in a commercial environment. There's going to be people who look just like you. There's probably a dozen of them. They're all reading for the same part. And you're going to see those people over and over. And that's what casting actually looks like. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's dangerous. It can be dangerous. It's up. Do whatever you want to do, right? So that then turned into, well, um, how do you get a job? I kept having people ask me, how do you get connected to this business? Because, you know, I was out there in a lot of social and I kept getting, well, you read my script. It's like, I, no, I can't help you with your script, but I can help you figure out how to get connected to people. And that's how the book came about. So it, mm -hmm. it walks 
young writer, director, producers, um, actors, and even crew. What do you want to do? It walks you through the process of what do you want to do? What area do you want to work in? What kind of shows do you want to work on? Because if you want to work in our drama, you don't want to go work for Endemol, who makes reality television. They're just, they're two different things. you got to figure out where you need to focus and who you need to focus on. You research who the, what the shows are, who are the people that work on them. You want to be a writer. Are you going to get to Joss Whedon? Probably not going to happen. Are you going to get to his assistant? Maybe. Are you going to get to the staff writer on one of his shows? Yeah, more than likely you can sit down and do an informational. And I walk hmm. people through the, the research, how to do the informational, how to make contact on social, sounding relevant, interested, and actually educated about the business so that they'll actually respond to you. That's a really important thing. Mm -hmm. I get emails all the time. Will you read my script? Will you watch my showcase? Will you look at my short film? No, I can't help you. I don't hire writer, director, actors, but I can help you if you're someone graduating from finance from Northridge University, who this girl called me and said, I want to work in film production. I just finished a CPA degree, but I don't want to be a CPA. I'm like, yeah, I can help you. So I talked to her. I pointed mm -hmm. her in a direction and it helped her out, right? So it's understanding who the industry, how the industry is structured and who you need to talk to for the gold job that you're trying to go for. And that's what I teach in my book. Hmm. Good. So I guess in, in your example, is that, is that because you see more, is that just because you, you are for, more familiar with the, let's say the, the financing side of film, or you see more opportunities on the, you know, people who are from people who are not wanting to be like lead actors or the high, higher profile roles? Well, it's all of the above. I mean, it's basically, I see a common thread, whether it's actors, writers, directors, crew, whatever, producers, there's a common thread in that conversation. And it all starts with connecting with one person and mm -hmm. demonstrating to that person that you are educated about the business, you're dedicated to it, and that you have some kind of skill, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that just begins with declaring what you are. I hear so many times young people say, young meaning people who are new to a profession, I'm an, a I'm an actor, right? I, I wait tables now, but I'm an actor. It's like, no, I'm an actor. Actors, until you're established, their job is auditioning. Auditioning mm -hmm. is a job. It's an unpaid job. It's a lousy job, but it is a job. You're a working actor. Until you get paid, you're still a working actor. So a lot of it is understanding what like how to approach the industry and who to talk to you're not gonna if you're an actor talking to producers might get you dinner you know but that's about it they're not going to get you a job casting directors are going to get you a job directors maybe will get you a job but honestly by and large they're just there you gotta you gotta go to the right place same mm -hmm. with directors if you're a director or a writer you gotta go talk to development no one even knows what development is when they come to this business who's new to it there's an entire industry of tens of thousands of people who read scripts, books, manuscripts, and uh, what basically which are unpublished books and mm -hmm. or magazine articles or newspaper articles and turn them into shows. That is an entire department you as a writer or director have to get connected to. You have to know those people. You have to know what level to get into. You're not going to get to a principal. You're not going to get to a VP, but you will get to a receptionist or a creative executive. Mm -hmm. So there's a common thread. How how are you looking or you know and, and advising the in, in your blogs and the people coming to you now about the how the industry is, has been changing and so um, like with the Netflix model coming up and now suddenly all these streaming groups are popping up and yeah. we, you know we're seeing less of like you know I, I know um, 
Top Gun, the new Top Gun movie is the exception to the rule, but there's less and less of that big, like what seemed to be more popular in the 80s and 90s the, of the, you know, the blockbuster movies coming out of the traditional movie studios. And now we're watching, again, people make deals with, with the, the distribution and, and channels like Netflix. And how are you then looking at how the industry is changing and what that means for jobs and, and where the next um, generation of, of producers and, and, and production assistants are going to? Well, long-term, I think the industry is going direct to consumer. I think the studios and the networks will lose their control on the creative process and on creatives. There's always going to be people who want to get in line, go hat Mm -hmm. in hand, deliver their material, get paid up front. That is the traditional studio process, right? You bring a script, you make a name for yourself, you write on some show, you write on a movie, and then you move up from a staff writer into a story, uh, a story analyst. Then you go from a story analyst to maybe you're a producer, which means you're writing, but you're also producing. Then you're an executive producer and you're a showrunner or whatever the trajectory is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that less of that system is going to become available. That's not English. I'll say it a different way. I think more of the direct to consumer model, understanding marketing, understanding content and distribution using the social channels and building an audience, that is becoming more available to producers and creatives in a way that it never has been. If your goal is ultimately to get into the studio system, you have to start out at some entry level job and you're gonna get ripped off the first time you do. You're gonna sell something and you're gonna get paid a nickel. You're still scale rates. And they're mm-hmm. good. It's good money, but you're not going to make big money until you've proven that you are an established entity in mm-hmm. the industry. And then they'll, eventually they'll give you some money, but you're going to work a couple of times and you're going to not get paid very well. And somebody else is going to get the credit and they're going to get the big money. Right. That's the grind. Right. I, you know, but for the first time ever, if you're a creative, there is an opportunity for you to be able to be selling direct to consumer. But there's a lot you can learn working within the system to, be, to build a network and to develop the skills that can actually sell material to people who want to open their wallet and give you money to buy your stuff. And it may not be buying a ticket to your show. It may be swag. It might be shirts, mugs. You know, like I said, I am the guy with the most obvious ideas in the room. But, <laughs> sure. you know, use your creative. Is it going to be NFTs? Probably. Right now they're getting hammered as far as everyone keeps saying, oh, it was all bullshit. It was just a grift. It's not. That is going to be micro payments in the future. People are going to pay for stuff in little tiny increments. If you can cobble together a bunch of those, you can probably make a really good six-figure income, uh, your take-home income, if you can figure out how to earn revenue, control costs, and run a business and market it to people to expand your audience. That's the future of our industry. But that may not be the first place to go. It might be better to go someplace where you can learn and develop a skill and then take it into an independent space. Oh, interesting. Okay, that's, that's good to hear. I've, because um, I've chatted with people about something similar a few different times and it's, um, it's nice to hear your, your take on that as, as well of just like, not just go for it, but to learn from some other people that you can then take those skills and then take advantage of the change in technology and and yeah. uh, utilize it that way versus kind of stumble your way through it in the beginning. Yeah, there's, you know, making content, I mean, understand that the business of making content, and I hate the term, but I'll use it anyway, 
It's movies or TV. It's not content. But making content for the past hundred years has been a loser at every turn. Every single studio since the 1920s that was created either went bankrupt or got bought by a, a big conglomerate. And now those studios and those content creators are single digit contributors to a giant conglomerate. So the business of content, the business of making TVs and movie, movies ultimately is a losing game if you're playing at the scale that you play at the studios and the networks. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's always going to be, but it is a game where you're having to convince people. At the end of the day, we're in the business of convincing people that what we have to sell them, our content, our product is good enough to open a wallet and give us money. And right now, that's a risk for a lot of people because there's a ton of free stuff and it's either $17 to $25 to go watch it at AMC or or Odeon or wherever you want to go watch it, or it's $17 a month at Netflix or Apple or Disney or wherever. So, you know, if you go to Netflix, you pay $17, but you get a billion dollars worth of content every month, mm-hmm. right? There's so much coming out. It's like drinking from a fire hose. How can you keep track of it all? Right. That, that will change. And I think the change is going to come in profound and significant ways in the next five years. And I don't think movie exhibition is going to be part of that change. Okay. How do you think through times when you were either uh, fearful? So maybe you were nervous about kind of taking the next role or, or, or you know, pausing and, and working for free in a couple of different spots. Cause I know you've, you've changed and jumped um, to, from a couple of different roles, but the idea of fear and then just like, you know, moving forward past it, how do you think through it and, and are able to keep continuing even if you are fearful? For me, it's financial. The fear comes from not being able to make a living, pay your bills and have to move back and live in the basement, right? Mm-hmm. That was always the thing. So I was always running a budget. I was always making, squirreling money away for projects I wanted to do in the future, things I wanted to do. So if I knew in a year or two's time, when I was 25 or five years time, I wanted to be a production executive. I was like, okay, here's how much it costs me to work. I mean, how it costs me to live. Here's how much money I can probably make, which those are out of sync with each other. Um, And I only had three days worth of guaranteed employment on Dream On. I stayed for nine months, but uh, there was only three days. And that's a pretty common thread. So I was in the back of my head. I'm like, okay, if I can if I can find some work, X amount of work every now and again, and I can collect unemployment from the state of California, can I pay my bills? Yes. So that's always my backup plan. Okay. When I was working as a producer, making more money, I took me a couple of years because I had to squirrel away some cash to, to be able to, to work through the lean times. So for me, it was about putting money away, saving, living within my means, and then budgeting stuff out. I know it sucks and it's, it's no fun. But that's how I did it. It's, the fear was always based on, for me, it was always based on money. I didn't want to be living out of my car. Mm-hmm. So with everything that you have done and experienced, what would you say has been the best advice that you ever received? The best advice I ever got was from a UPM, actually on Dream On, uh, Ron Wolotsky. And it was very specific advice about working in finance because I had decided I was going to go work in production accounting. And he said to me, He said, that's the place where you can learn the most about movie making, physical logistics and production. And the the way you're going to make a difference and the way you're going to make a mark is you're going to read every draft that comes across your desk. Because those folks sitting down the hall right now, all of them, none of them, except maybe one, 
has read the draft we're currently shooting on the script that we're shooting for this episode. Most of them just pay the bills, they do the time cards, but they read the script. No one reads a script. And if you do, you'll distinguish yourself. And what that, what I, that translated to me from Ron was, go above and beyond, do the extra. Don't just do the job you're currently doing. Do the job above you, do the next job above you, but do the job you currently have at the best level you possibly can. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today and hear your story. Um, for those listeners who would like to buy your book, um, potentially contact you, where is the best place they can go online to do all that? Well, the best place to get me just generally read my blog is timtortora.com. And my last name is spelled T-O-R-T-O-R-A. And there's, you know, social links and so on in the upper right. You can ask me a question. I, I get them. Either I get them or my assistant gets them. There's a form at the bottom right that you got to fill out. Assuming you're not a robot, you, it'll actually come to my desk. It'll get there somehow. If you're interested in buying my book, go to career.timtortora.com and you can read about it there and you can buy it. Wonderful. and Excellent. And I will put those links in the show notes so people can click right through. Cool. Uh, but, but again, thank you so much, Tim. This has been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating, like, and share with a friend. Our theme music is written and mixed by Chicago-based composer Ryan Black of Blackbones Collaborative. To listen to the full catalog of our episodes, go to advanceyourart.com. To see what I'm working on or book a time with me or buy a copy of my book, Be Left Behind, go to yuricataldo.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.